Hello, this is Deb from Deb's Data Dojo, part of the Calling All Beings podcast network. Today, I'm happy to speak to Gregory L. Little, who is the author of over 30 books, including the Illustrated Encyclopedia of Native American Indian Mounds and Earthworks. He has both studied and written about UFOs, Edgar Cayce, religion, psychology, ancient civilizations, and much more. He has a vast array of knowledge on the above-mentioned topics and has work that has been shown in documentaries on TV. However, though he may be the most impressive person I've spoken to, he's also one of the most humble people that I've invited into the dojo. So thank you so much for coming to speak to me today. I have... Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> I have so many questions about what you're doing and what brought you here. But can you um, expound a little bit on, um, you know, some of the shows you've been on, some of your other books, the topics you've been interested in, um, just sort of let people know more about you. Okay. Well, I really started in this field around 1975 or so. I uh, was very interested in UFOs, the paranormal, and so on. And that's when I got really involved in it. But before that, when I was in graduate school, I happened to have a major professor who had a PhD from Vanderbilt in, in psychopharmacology. And that was my original area. And his wife was a psychiatrist uh, who worked for the VA at the time. And she had a, her MD was from Vanderbilt also. And they were extremely interested in the paranormal. And so starting around 1971, right before I got into graduate school, I started going with them to all kinds of, uh, I'll say, odd and unusual events, people who were doing trance channeling, uh, people who were doing spoon bending, which then, you know, Yuri Geller stuff with spoon bending was a big deal. Uh, we did experiments in the laboratories using uh, what then was the highest uh, quality and most sophisticated uh, measuring devices at the time. Uh, on plants, uh, we tested plants to see if plants had feelings, uh, if plants had any kind of uh, way to sense individuals and different people. Uh, we did tests in the laboratories on pyramids, building little pyramid structures according to the instructions that people would give. Uh, and trying to see if pyramid power was real, uh, either with plants or trying to grow something in them. Uh, or they, they used to say that if you put a dull razor under a pyramid that was made a certain way, that it would sharpen the razor. So we did all these experiments then, went to all the trance channeling, uh, went to a lot of spoon bending and other kind of psychic phenomena groups that were in our area at the time. Uh, and that really got me going into it. In graduate school, uh, I was kind of busy. I was too busy to really stay in this. Uh, my area at the time, again, was psychopharmacology, which is the study of how drugs work in the brain. Uh, and when my major professor left, I had a professor who was totally disinterested in this and really did not want me to spend any time in it, which was fine. Uh, but when I got my doctorate, the moment I got my doctorate, I finished my first book uh, on UFOs, and it was a follow-up to Carl Jung's final book. Carl Jung's last book was called Flying Saucers, A Modern Myth of Things Seen in the Skies. 
And in that book, Jung talked about UFOs as a, he mentioned the word, the term, uh, a modern myth or a living myth, which is totally misunderstood by people. So I wrote a follow-up book to Jung's book. It came out in 1984. Uh, and in 1985, I came out with another one in 86 and 87. Uh, I also have loads of various workbooks and so on. But I have about 30 books in the field of Native Americans, Native American mounds, spiritualism. Uh, my wife and I spent 10 years uh, searching in the Bahamas and in the Yucatan Peninsula for ruins, archaeological ruins underwater, uh, which was under the auspices of uh, the Edgar Casey Foundation in Virginia Beach, along with an archaeologist who is out of California. So we worked under uh, under the uh, archaeological permit with the archaeologist. Uh, so that's kind of a summary of some of it. I've been to thousands of Indian mounds. I wrote an encyclopedia on mounds. The first year it came out was 2009. I did a revision in 2016 of it. It's a very large, oversized hardcover book that was planned to look a lot like the 1800s books that the Smithsonian put out. Uh, and I'm currently working on the third revision of that book along with certain travel guides. I had one come out years ago in Alabama. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we're working on a, a line of travel guides. So that's kind of a little summary. I don't know how many UFO books I, so, books that I could call UFO books, but the most recent one of those is called Origins of the Gods, which I co-authored with British author Andrew Collins, who's on uh, Ancient Aliens and the William Shatner show called The Unexplained almost every episode. So Andrew and I did a book on what the UFO phenomenon is really about, came out last year, less than a year ago. So that's a summary brings you up to date. And I guess that's it. We got nothing else to I talk about, right? That's a lot. That, what do you mean we don't have anything? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm joking, okay. of course. Okay. So, I mean, first of all, I want to like backpedal to the very first part uh, and I'll tackle all the other parts when we get to them. But the first part about 1975, around that time period when parapsychology was kind of taken a little bit more seriously and studied in labs, I feel like that's dwindled quite a bit even though it was obvious um, to anyone who spent time looking at FOIAs that the government had studied it too and was taking it seriously. That's how the remote viewing program came out um, eventually. And that was like 20 years of them studying it seriously. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I have, you know, of course, heard that there are places and universities that continue to study that. So did you feel like any conclusions came out of that? Um, did you get any sense of um, people sort of accepting that and taking it seriously? Well, it's not it's not in the mainstream at all. And the mainstream has when you use that term, I mean, academia and the people that teach in academia and the people who write the textbooks. That's what I mean by mainstream. So, no, uh, they don't like it. There still are people in the in out there in psychology in certain departments that are still doing paralogical research. Uh, and I will say that the government has mm -hmm. continued to do lots of research. Uh, it's kind of hard to find their stuff. I've written a great deal about the governmental research, uh, mm -hmm. which for people to find it, you can't find any of that online. You have to go to a governmental repository library 
go into the governmental section, which most libraries require that you get permission to do it. And then you literally have to search. You have to mm -hmm. sit down and go through those printed books. But what you find in them, uh, in the articles, are a lot of references to unpublished research reports that came from grants. So what has, what's going on is this. The federal government funds a lot of grants on very specific pieces of a much larger puzzle. So the picture is real big here, and the government funds grants for little pieces of this. And the people that are doing these little pieces of research really don't know what the big picture is, and sometimes it's hard to put it all together. If you want to see somebody who, who, whose publications were actively available, it was Michael Persinger at Laurentian University in Canada. Persinger mm -hmm. published roughly, I think it's around 400 articles on his laboratory research, uh, which I firmly believe was done through U.S. government grants to him, uh, a lot of people tried to shut down Persinger's research because mm -hmm. he developed a helmet, which was dubbed the God helmet. Uh, and it was a way to research people's experiences, uh, people's UFO experiences, their experiences of seeing alien beings and so on, long before anybody was using drugs to do this. Persinger started his research around 1971. Uh, and I interacted with Persinger before he died. He actually uh, referenced a number of my journal articles that I published in all this uh, many years ago. But the government continues to do this. Uh, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying that they really don't make it widely known. Yeah, it's funny because things are leaking out, though. You're finding, we find out about things from DARPA that seem to really line up with this. A lot of it has to do now with like a technology mixing with our brainwave activity or telepathy. And it seems like that's the next stage with this, that they're marrying technology and human abilities. Well, they've actually, the U.S. Navy has patents on a number of uh, their, they use lasers, but it's not the kind of laser that people think of. And they can actually, miles away, beam words into a person's head. Persinger was the first person to do this in the labs. He could, he could put words, you would hear the sounds in your head like somebody speaking in your head. Persinger was also able in his lab through electromagnetic fields. We're talking about swirling magnetic fields that he could produce that would focus on certain areas of the brain. And by doing this, he was able to predict or control people's choices. They were given choice situations in laboratory settings using computers and so on, which were old computers because this was done in the 80s. So people could literally sit in the lab and think they're making choices. They'd be given choices on a screen and then they would make, then they would decide what choice they wanted. Well, Persinger could control their choices through, through these electromagnetic fields. So the Navy has done a lot. Uh, I'll refer readers to this. If you look up U.S. Navy and you add laser electromagnetic weapons technology, you will wind up finding articles 
put out by uh, Popular Mechanics and by Forbes magazine. And in those articles, they only came out a couple years ago. In those articles, you will see the Navy's patents that they have made on all of these. Uh, I tell a story in the books and in a book in 1990 that I wrote called called uh, People of the Web uh, and another called Grand Illusions in 94. In, in those books, I told a story about being in um, Gulf Breeze, Florida, back in 1989, when there was a long series of UFO sightings from the same place that hundreds and hundreds of people saw. And it was filmed by Japanese film crews. My wife and I went there uh, on the 10th straight night that it showed. The Japanese film crew had been there the night before, and they made a documentary on it. Uh, and what we saw was a red light that appeared in the sky, a point of light. It lasted exactly 90 seconds. Everybody in the park knew how long it was going to last. And in the last 10 seconds, this red light that was about four or five times, very intense red. It was about four or five times the size that you'd see Venus in the sky. And it suddenly, they said, now watch this, it's going to pop. And then it suddenly came out to about 10 times its size and it was white. And then it started changing color and all around the edges, then it turned off literally like a light would turn off, but all around the edges were little sparkles everywhere around the edge. And it so happened that I knew the location pretty well because back in 1992, my very first graduate assistantship was working with the Office of Naval Research in Pensacola, Florida. Uh, and I tell this story also in the book, Origins of the Gods. Uh, and I went to the Pensacola labs. At that time, I was a young graduate student. I wasn't allowed into the back with the army colonel who was over all this. Uh, it was a colonel in the U.S. Army who had been the head of the research facilities at Fort Knox at the uh, army base there. And he came to the school I was at, which was at then Memphis State University, and got this massive grant. And we traveled all over the country testing Navy pilots with this device that they would put into their ears. Uh, we had this equipment. I never knew exactly what all the equipment did, but we went all over the country. There were two of us that did this for about a two-year period, testing about 3,000 U.S. Navy pilots with this stuff. Uh, but I knew at the Office of Naval Research that they were doing, this is what their research assistants told me while I was waiting, they were doing the same kind of things I was doing in the psychopharmacology labs. And that is they were doing research, which is uh, kind of euphemistically called, I wonder what if. And that is, if I do this sort of uh, stimulus, I wonder what will happen. So I wonder what will happen if I do this? And at that time, I know the Navy was experimenting with electromagnetic beams, which are very much like a laser, and making a focal point. And in that, in back in 1990, I wrote, I suddenly turned around in that park. I counted the people there. There were 106 people there. And I was pretty certain there. this has to be an Office of Naval Research psychological study and I was looking for somebody who I thought might be involved with it. And I really thought that's what it is. They were really testing what are people's reactions to this. And now, see, I have um, also 
come across a few things related to this, right? We've got Havana syndrome, which is still a big question mark about it's, it's, they're not lumping that in with alien contact or anything no. like that. It's a separate thing, but it is clearly on the same vein. And then we have John Alexander, who is involved in UFOs, who also was involved with these non-lethal weapons when he worked for the government. And he himself talks about that in his book. Yeah. And then I have spoken to members of the Navy who have told me about using weapons against other people, you know, usually like pirates, you know, yeah. um, that, that they called the sick gun so that the people would not board them, would not come near them, and they didn't have to kill them or be lethal. It was a non-lethal yeah. electromagnetic beam that they would shoot at them. Um, and then, of course, if you go look at um, on the YouTube page for some of these contractors, they're very open. Um, I'm For some reason, Lockheed, thank you, Lockheed Martin, yeah. very open about what they're doing with directed energy beams. In fact, you can look up the stuff about their, what they're doing with plasma balls on the Internet now, too. Yeah. All of this, yeah. all of this technology that we used to attribute to UFOs seems to emerge in our technology. So well, what you're saying that, doesn't surprise me at all. That is exactly what I think they have done. I think that the UFO phenomenon and the electromagnetic fields associated with genuine reports. Uh, and I, I'll say now, I don't believe most of the UFO stuff is extraterrestrial. I don't think it's alien. I think it's something else. It does have intelligence and it has a purpose whatever that purpose may be. Uh, but I don't think it's alien. But I believe that back starting in the 70s, when they started realizing that this phenomenon, whatever it is, does affect us. If you look at cases like Betty Hill uh, and even Whitley Strieber. Whitley Strieber is a pretty good friend of mine. Whitley and I have done loads of shows. I think it's like a dozen shows together now. Uh, and Whitley pretty much agrees that whatever the phenomenon is, uh, it's not what we think it is. These, these are not alien entities coming out of craft. They are something else. But I believe that, they, that the military and their contractors have taken what they found out about UFOs and begun to apply it technologically and if you read the Condine report, not the Condon report, but the Condine, the British Ministry of Defense report, I believe it was written in 2004, it says that straight out. It says in it that research into the technology of the plasma forms that comprise genuine UFOs is undergoing. That is in that Condine report. Uh, and I actually found some of that literature on the research in the government repository library, uh, which the you know, right. University of Memphis now has one. Uh, and I reached a point around 1994, no, 1996, where I realized, well, this is really a dead end because you cannot get through the Freedom of Information Act or any other way. You can't get the grant reports that the contractors write. That belongs to them. So right. it's, although it's done for the government, you still can't get that information. 
but people just have to go to the YouTube page. Like Lockheed yeah, Martin is <laughs> like, well, he's, they're so open. Like they're talking about having little nuclear powered engines essentially yeah. on their craft and on their page, they show the directed energy weapons. And it doesn't take a lot for someone to find out about metamaterials or any yeah. of that stuff and how they're being applied. In fact, universities tend to get a lot of this now. Um, even like the the experiment I was talking about with DARPA, with the brain to AI interface that is supposed to be used to basically move objects. Universities are doing that now. Yeah. So I guess, you know, I feel like which came first, the chicken or the egg is still a question I'm still struggling with constantly. Right. We, we always think it maybe is the egg. Maybe it was the UFO that came first, and that would be logical. But, you know, a lot of this really has me thinking. Like, I, I even um, superconductor stuff that people talk about with the levitation, there are patents related to superconductors, right? Um, yeah. So <laughs> what came well, first? Well, that's where I go into the Native American stuff, because they have always had ideas uh, and have talked about written well they didn't write about it but others did about the force that they interacted with uh, and we know pretty much what their ideas were about this force and it that's where i was talking earlier kind of uh giving a clue about it about its purpose what is it why what's its intention or whatever what is this force that we are interacting with which to some people is alien to some people, uh, they're little people. You know, the term little people is Native American, but the little people are the same thing as the Muslim jinn, spelled J-I-N-N. Uh, the same thing as fairies uh, and all the fairy lore in England and so on. Uh, are all those stories, If are all those stories uh, genuine? No, uh, but I believe a lot of them are, and I've studied enough of the Native American right. stuff information to know that they truly were interacting with something, an energy force, which could manifest itself in physical reality. Uh, and I've reached the point where, uh, as I've written that I've struggled with terms, how do you explain this? Uh, if you call them uh, ghost lights or fairies or jinn or uh, energy beings or whatever, uh, UFO beings, extraterrestrials, every single term that we use has some sort of implication that isn't sufficient. So I simply refer to them as time beings, T-I-I-M-E, and it stands for transient intrusions of intelligent manifesting energy. Mm -hmm. A transient intrusion of intelligent manifesting energy. I believe the energy is naturally generated by earth forces and it it emerges as a plasma but it has intelligence and that's not a crazy idea that some uh, psychologist came up with that is from physicists mainstream physics tells us that plasmas temporary though they are plasmas probably have an intelligence because they can interact with us and they believe that if they're allowed to manifest themselves long enough, that a plasma is has the same characteristics as life, as us. 
it can multiply and reproduce. They, they create a genetic structure that looks just like human DNA, like the double helix on the interior of the plasma. And all of this is in mainstream textbooks or mainstream physics articles. It's not anything that's really crazy. Uh, mm -hmm. A lot of people take ideas that they don't understand. Uh, this is just plain psychology. If you don't understand something, you come to the conclusion that it's nonsense or there's nothing to understand there. That's right. the first step people make. Oh, there's nothing to understand here. This is all nonsense. But it's not. Mainstream physics tells us that plasmas are a probably a life form, a brief life form. But what is it? We are all transient intrusions of intelligent manifesting energy. Even us, though we may live 75, 78 years or whatever, that's still transient in the scheme of things. We are intelligent. We interact. We are manifestations of energy. That is literally what we are. Now, I think a lot of people lean towards a non-material view of consciousness, but I'm leaning towards what you're talking about often with it. I feel like consciousness is a form of energy and everything um, that that people talk about with how it like spreads out, there's sort of like a connection between all consciousness. To me, that's there's a physicality to it somehow. And I think that it's, gonna, it's in that EM spectrum. Um, I do too. And and that I, was Carl Jung's idea, and that was the same idea that John Keel had. Jung actually said that. Jung said that they are that archetypes. He believed that the UFOs ultimately were archetypes, the archetypal manifestation. And he used a term that almost nobody understands or uses. It's psychoid, P-S-Y-C-H-O-I-D. He said that archetypes under the right conditions are a psychoid manifestation and they move from the ultraviolet end of the electromagnetic spectrum into the visible portion of the spectrum. And John Keel said the same thing that, and he called them ultra terrestrials, uh, which is a term that makes it sound like they're off earth, but they're not. It's simply a manifestation of ultraviolet not ultraviolet, but electromagnetic energy that moves from either the infrared or the ultraviolet end into the, the visible wavelengths. Now, so what's interesting about this is that I've actually studied what's going on with that as well. And we know in quantum computing, scientists have been studying this as well, that you can go from one end of the spectrum to another. And then if you keep going down, you end up with matter. Um, mm -hmm. So... And but but this comes to a question. Here's a question. We know in some cases when potential experiments have happened or encounters have happened that involve the EM spectrum, people have been injured, including the Condine report talked about radiation exposure that resulted in a lawsuit with Burroughs. And of course, there were other people that, you know, were exposed, but he actually ended up really sick and had heart damage. And then we know that um, in the Cash Lundrum case, they, they were exposed yeah. to some sort of gamma radiation, which the government <laughs> denied, despite the fact that black helicopters were seen. Um, so do you think that if the government is trying to cover all of this up, it's because of the injuries that have happened? Well... 
that's assuming that these that whatever caused the injuries was done by the government. Uh, I'm not sure that what the Cash Landrum case was was an actual craft. Um, and I know from the research that was ongoing in the Piedmont area of southeastern Missouri uh, back in the 80s uh, that uh, the chairperson of the Department of Physics at Southeastern State uh, Missouri, uh, State University of Missouri, uh, they said point blank that these are plasmas, but very often when they were studying the plasmas in the field over a seven-year period, this took place. Uh, when they were studying these, very often military craft would come in. Now, they contacted the military at the time, and the military told them that they had no idea what was going on. Somewhat later, uh, back in the 80s, I was able to talk at length with the Adjutant General of the Missouri National Guard. Uh, and it's because uh, he was a relative of mine uh, on my wife's side. And she is from New Madrid, Missouri, a place where all these cases took place. And what I was told, I was told about the black helicopters. That's one of the things I wanted to ask about, because at that time, everybody was freaking out about black helicopters. And I had a lot of photographs of black helicopters that I had taken, particularly the ones at night that didn't make much noise at all. He told me about them. Uh, and he told me that during all that stuff in the 80s, they weren't producing or causing any of it. They were picking up certain things on radar. And so the Missouri Air National Guard would send out jets and sometimes helicopters to try and see what in the world's going on. And so there's a coincidence between the plasmas being viewed and the jets and so on coming in. If you know from Project Condine, you know that uh, the plasma forms, particularly called dusty plasmas or exotic plasmas, those can be picked up on radar. And the Navy itself has produced a type of uh, radar decoy made out of plasma, which is picked up on radar. Uh, and it's just a decoy. It's not physical in the sense that we think of something being physical. But when you create the point of it, when you bring it to a focal point, it becomes a plasma and it starts attracting into itself physical matter, which there's, you know, air is physical matter. Uh, all the molecules mm -hmm. in air, it's physical. Uh, not just that, the term dusty plasma means that, that because it's electrostatic and it's magnetic, it starts pulling in dust, anything, any kind of particles that it can pull in. Therefore, it can be picked up on radar. But I was told that that is what they were doing at the time and in the, in the 80s when they were trying to figure out what these lights were in Missouri. Now, what's interesting is John Ramirez um, came out and spoke publicly about the CIA looking at orbs. And a lot of people who learn about orbs can't help but wonder if they're also the same as plasma or ball lightning or, you know, there's like a lot of yeah. crossover. But there was an orb working group um, studying these things because they were being picked up by satellites. So okay. it's it goes well beyond like the radar, right? It's like the, there's a lot going on. I spoke to someone who had a ball lightning experience, experience, and he said the ball lightning 
stayed around his house for several minutes and navigated the house. And that sounded intelligent to me. And yeah. I said, are you sure that was ball lightning? <laughs> because it wasn't just grounding. It wasn't right. just electrocuting something. It was navigating his house. Well, as I said, the plasma, my time beings, they're intelligent manifestations of energy that are plasma. And technically, the ball lightning orb, uh, most physicists say that it is a ball of plasma. Um, that it's, you know, the term lightning, it's formed by lightning. That's why how it got its name. Uh, but it's a plasma. It's a ball of plasma. Uh, mm -hmm. And everywhere these have been, Yakima, the Yakima Reservation in Washington State, another example uh, everything written about it, all the research that was done, and I interacted a lot with those researchers, they all concluded that these are balls of plasma also. Uh, and I, I spent a lot of time at night on the Yakima Reservation, and I was there with uh, government officials from Washington State because at the time the Yakima tribe was not allowing anyone to do any research on the reservation, so I wound up going out with government officials from the state. Uh, but um, I, the traditional little orbs and so on, uh, maybe that I don't know, uh, but I know the real balls of plasma or the ball lightning. It's a very real phenomenon. Uh, and it probably occurs in the daytime. Plasmas also occur in the daytime. However, they are transparent. During the daytime, they would be transparent. So they're simply not seen. That's why night lights are seen. Uh, that's why most UFO sightings are made at night, not in the daytime, because you simply don't observe them in the daytime. Doesn't mean they're not there. You just can't see them. I think it's also just as Cheryl Costa and um, Cheryl Costa's wife, Linda Costa, has pointed out, is that that people just aren't outside looking. <laughs> Like well, that's a, that's a good thing too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But at, but night when you're not working, people see it. Leisure time yeah. is what Cheryl calls it. Um. So, I would say an interesting side note about this is that I have a friend who work, uh, lives in that area. The Yak. Um. I'm sorry. I wrote Yakima. it down because Yakima. Uh, yeah. And, um, that friend has had a lot of sightings, and it resulted in them joining the UFO community and doing the research. And I have another friend that you may be familiar with, Ron Westrom, who's also done a lot of research on that. Okay. Really I interesting. The, I know the name. That's it. Yeah. Ron Westrom is, um, he was a member of SSE and he is a sociologist. So it's really yeah. interesting that that keeps coming back to me in some way. Someone keeps bringing it up to me. So I feel like I need to pay attention. Well, Yakima and Missouri were the two places, those two cases were the ones that had the most scientific research. Uh, in some cases, it, the research lasted a decade or more. Uh, there still is a guy who does research out in Yakima. Uh, his name is Akers, uh, Aker, A-K-E-R. Um, and I spoke with him some years ago. Uh, he will not call them UFOs because he says the term UFO is to everybody means extraterrestrial. And he says, these aren't extraterrestrial. However, if you actually read the reports from there and for that matter, the ones in Missouri, people who got close to these manifestations of energy reported all kinds of strange experiences. And it's real similar to Native American reports. Uh, a lot of the reports at Yakima were in fact from Native Americans. There are a few 
houses at the base of the mountain, which is called Toppenish Ridge in Yakima, where most of it took place. Toppenish Ridge is huge, doesn't have a single tree on it. And there's over a hundred. If you go to one side of, of Toppenish Ridge and look at it, you can see these fault lines everywhere. There's over a hundred known fault lines cutting through this ridge. And so when, when, the, when the real UFO reports were coming from there, people living at the base would literally see balls of light, almost like a giant ball that would come out of the ground and literally roll down the side of that mountain. And when they got close to it, some people saw they would smell rotten eggs. Mm -hmm. Some people saw Bigfoot. They saw manifestations of creatures within these balls. The same thing actually occurred in Missouri during the Missouri cases. During It was Project Identification was the name of the project. And a book came out, and I believe it was 89, by the same name, uh, by Harley Rutledge, who was the chairperson of the Department of Physics there. Um, and in all those cases, they believed that the people got close to this energy manifestation. And of course, science at the time didn't really understand what was going on. But what we understand is that when you get close to certain electromagnetic fields, it begins to affect brain chemistry. And it, and it affects the transmission of, through synapses of one cell to another. The brain is not really electrical. Most people say it is, but it is electrical potential that's simply caused by ions going in and out of axons and so on. I don't want to get into all that. Uh, but those potentials are altered. The question is, why do people then see these forms? Why are the forms kind of consistent? Why wouldn't they be just anything crazy, almost like under the influence of something like LSD, people often see, uh, you won't you won't necessarily see the same things under LSD. You'll see trees breathe. You'll see, uh, you'll see music. You'll smell music. You'll taste music. You might actually taste color. Um, anyway. Well, you know what? I have to say this, though. They just had an article come out about DMT. Where yeah. they do consistently see similar yes, entities. Yes, exactly. DMT. Absolutely. Right. They call them and the I, I have been on a series of shows about that. I uh, was mm -hmm. on a documentary that just got shown at the Roswell Film Festival. In fact, it won Best Documentary at the festival. Uh, and the show is all about DMT uh, and why people see the same things. So at this point, my real belief is that some hallucinogens taken in certain doses affect our perception in such a way that we have access to uh, another realm, a realm that actually exists. This is something Native Americans did. In fact, Native Americans in North America used DMT also. It is found in several indigenous plant species here, none of which I want to talk about because people will run out and start grabbing it and so on. Uh, and they mixed it with Datura, which is a very potent, uh, well, it's Datura will kill you uh, if you take too much of it, but it's a potent stimulant basically. Uh, and I know the Zuni tribe was using Datura and the substances that had uh, dimethyltryptamine or DMT in it. Uh, 
I remember when we got DMT in the labs uh, in get at, at Memphis State back in '73, uh, giving it to rats. Uh, we also got at the time fencyclidine, which is PCP. Uh, and that's when we were engaging. I wonder what if we'd get research, we'd get these drugs from the DEA and they'd say, we got this new drug. Tell us what it does. So we get these things in vials. And I remember getting a, a vial of uh, uh, fencyclidine and my major professor came in and said, we just got this in. Why don't you see what it does to a rat? And I remember getting a white lab rat, putting it on my desk while I was working on other stuff and injected it with PCP. And about five seconds later, the rat just fell over on its side and started crawling around in a circle, around and around and around and around, just kept doing that. But that's literally how that kind of research starts out. Right. Uh, yeah. Well, I've, uh, I've read some of the spirit molecule and yeah. I've done a little bit of looking at DMT, but I'm more interested in what happens with the brain, not only with DMT, altered states, you know, ayahuasca, all those things, but also what happens when someone might, for instance, have autism or if they have schizophrenia or if, like Gary Nolan is saying, they have enhanced white matter um, in part of the basal ganglia or, you know, like it seems like there is something that happens with our brain that unleashes this stuff, right? That's these exposures, yeah. these encounters. And it's more like we become extremely receptive when our brain is altered. If someone has brain damage, for instance, the neuroplasticity of the brain allows them to just be open to other things. Yeah. All of a sudden, they might start having more intuition, more psychic abilities is what, you know, intuitions like the, psychology friendly way of saying it now but mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's psychic abilities well i know so. the mainstream explanation for all that i'm not sure it's correct uh and it goes back to synesthenia which is the it's like like i said before the brain really isn't electrical but it has wiring and the wiring are actually tubes um, hollow tubes that have liquid in them and ions but anyway the idea is that um it, there's a short circuit that occurs that when you take these hallucinogenic drugs, uh, for example, the optic nerve, which eventually goes back to the back of the brain, well, it passes near the auditory cortex. And the idea is that a short circuit occurs. And so you begin hearing things that you are seeing. And the same thing with smell. Smell goes to the olfactory bulbs. Well, that also short circuits to other areas. That's the mainstream idea. But it it always discounts the idea that you might become more perceptive of something that is real and is there that our, you know, the whole human body is an antenna, an electromagnetic antenna. The eyes, the retina of the eyes is made up of two types on the, on the inner wall of the retina. There's two types of cells. They're called rods and cones. And each of those, every one of them, of the tens of millions in each retina, each one of those is an electromagnetic receptor, like an antenna on an old AM radio. But it's only picking up a very specific frequency of the electromagnetic energy spectrum. 
the five that's actually about 4.7% of the spectrum is called visible light. Well, there's a lot outside of visible light. We know that. It's a good thing we can't see it all because we couldn't see anything then. All we would see is moving images. You wouldn't be able to see anything else. So our eyes supposedly evolved in such a way that we can only see what's in the visible light spectrum. But obviously, there must be something else out there. And I think these drugs give us access to it. Right. And also we have, you know, the technology now to see beyond. And once we've enhanced our signal yep. awareness, we've enhanced our picking up of objects that we were not aware of before. You know, it's fascinating also if you think about just 200 years ago, like we didn't even understand DNA. You know, we no. didn't have no. the idea of um, bacteria and germs and like, these microscopic universes. World. They're everywhere. <laughs> Right. Well, Native, yeah. Native Americans had the same idea in their using of hallucinogenic substances, but they found other ways to create the same experience uh, through rituals. And the rituals would exhaust them physically and emotionally. They would use high pitched sounds, repetitive drumming. Uh, and of course, they would use uh, in, incredible doses of tobacco, which is their tobacco was about 10 times as potent as what we have today. And they would mix that with Datura and other substances, all different kinds of substances. But they created these rituals where they had access to this other world and they did it routinely. And they believed these were these beings were physically real, but they also knew they were temporary and they had an they felt an obligation to interact with them. All of their rituals that they performed were done purposely so they could interact with these forces, not in an effort to control them because they knew they could not be controlled. And I believe the same thing. I don't believe we can control these other forces, but we interact with them. And their belief was and still is that you interact with it to harmonize with it. By creating harmony with it, you reduce the chaos that it causes when you interact with it spontaneously or non-purposely. And they actually had a term for that. It was a trickster interaction. And Jung, Jung talked a lot about the trickster in his UFO book. Because if you think about it, go back to all the 1950s reports of the contactees where mm -hmm. a person would say a flying saucer landed and out walks a Nordic looking woman or a strange looking being. And mm -hmm. they say they are from Venus or from Mars or they right. say they're from Jupiter. Uh, and they tell us that we're killing ourselves and that the world is going to be destroyed by nuclear energy if we don't do something about it. But we know that these beings lied. Right. Now, when I say they lied, I simply mean they're being a trickster. They're doing what a trickster does. So Native Americans literally say that when you are interacting with this, you are always dealing with a trickster. But a trickster is also a creator. If you can get by the trickster part of it, then you are allowed to interact and find some deeper truths as it being a creator. It's the same thing. The spider is a good example of that. The spider spins a web. The web connects all things. In fact, when you drive into some Indian mountains, a good example is a state park in Kolomoki, Kolomoki, Georgia, gigantic park, several big mounds. 
when you drive in, there's a sign that says all things are connected. That is an ancient Native American belief. And if you go to modern physics, modern physics will tell you all things are connected. And what's interesting is I've studied some things that have to do with Eastern religions. And, you know, this it's the same thing, Shintoism, there's spirit mm -hmm. in everything, right? In fact, the, the temples tended to be designed to like hold spirit in, you know, because everything had spirit. In fact, you well, get that for, for anyone who doesn't know about Shintoism, you can watch anime. There's spirits for everything. There's stone spirits and dust spirits and like, you know, everything. Um, so, yeah, I agree. I think that's really interesting. Um, I see a lot of common threads between all of these faiths and religions and spiritual beliefs. And I feel like you went on the same path that I'm currently on. Like I started with yo i think ufos are real like then i was yeah. looking at the foyers and then i ended up going this is about humanity this is about our place in the universe it's well beyond the ufos and you know i like this is why i've studied dmt why i've been reading sapiens on and off why i've been reading um hoffman yeah. and about reality and perception you know so you you know i think a lot of people get there. A lot of people realize it's well beyond objects in the sky. Yeah. Well, let, let me mention one more thing. Okay. You mentioned Shintoism and how they would try to uh, probably contain spiritual entities. Native Americans did that. One of the areas, of course, that I'm best known for are the Native American mounds and the earthworks and so on. So North America has tens of thousands of mounds, probably a hundred thousand still exist. There are about a thousand earthworks, which are uh, made of linear piles of earth. In some cases, they're 16 to 20 feet high. And so think of a giant circle that might enclose 20, 30 acres. So you get a 30 acre circle. And it's what causes the circle is that they've built a wall of earth 16 feet high around it. Inside the circle, inside, not outside, they put a moat. They dig a moat six to eight feet deep. So why do they do that? What's the belief system? Well, the, these, these are sacred sites and ceremonial centers. So a circular earthwork like that is designed for rituals that will manifest these entities. So they physically manifested the entities and the walls of earth, earth being in the Native American belief, the most primordial form of spiritual energy that exists. Earth is the most primordial. Crystals are a purified and hardened form of it. Water is a flowing form of it. Fire is the release of energy. Everything that they saw had this spirit. Everything, and, and the, you know, it's called animism by the skeptics. It's not animism because it's not alive in the sense that we think it is. It is pure spiritual en energy. It has an entity with it. That's another story. But the walls of earth are designed to contain the spiritual forces that they manifest. Um, it's very complicated. Uh, there's a lot of specifics about it, how they would make these entities manifest. But in that old literature, they say these entities are real. Uh, I had a shaman stay with us for 30 days. Uh, the, Shy the arrow priest of the Cheyenne tribe uh, stayed with my wife and I for 30 days in 1989. And we had many discussions about this. 
and then he led me to uh, some a book that had been written about his grandfather, who was named Edward Red Hat, who talked specifically about this to an ethnographer from Germany back around in the 60s and early 70s before he died. And they say point blank that they make these spiritual entities manifest. They entities don't hang around. That is, they don't walk around like us, you know, walk over the earth and then, you know, live another 20 or 30 years. They only manifest in the in the ceremonial sacred space. They interact with the people there. They always start out as a trickster form. And it is the intentions of the percipient or the person interacting with them that dictate what transpires during this interaction with them. And I think the same thing occurs with UFOs. I think in the legitimate sightings, the legitimate ones, and people see these entities, I think they are first interacting with something like a trickster. You never see the true form of a trickster. And that's actually in Zuni mythology. They're, they're kachinas. The kachinas wear a mask. Under the mask is another mask. Under that mask is another mask. And the whole idea of it is, is that there is no true form of it. A trickster has no true form. And these entities that we're interacting with don't have a true form. They don't have one like we think of. Like I have a true form right now. I can't mm -hmm. really change it much. Uh, but they don't. They are a fluid-like manifestation of energy. You can call it spiritual energy or whatever else. Uh, and again, Native Americans have been doing this for thousands and thousands of years. Uh, they interacted with them to send themselves to the stars. They have loads of, of ancient, ancient mythology that is written down in the old ethnographer books from the 1700s and 1800s of these entities coming down in orbs of light and then delivering a message to them. There are loads of stories like that. And, you know, what's funny is, again, this is something that there's like so many things I could say about what you've just said. There's the religious parallel where we have entities surrounded by orbs of light. Halos is what they called them. There were gods that had halos like Apollo. Right there. there even the mound building, of course, there's an international component with pyramids yep. and other mounds and various pyramid shapes all over the world. Right. So Joan of Arc, Joan of Arc, all the entities yes. that she, she actually saw entities in orbs of light. And there was one witness of Joan of Arc who saw the orbs of light. That, right. that came out at her trial. There's a lot written about her, too, in this. I wrote some of this in the recent book. Edgar Casey, which a lot of people don't like Edgar Casey. That's fine. But Edgar Casey had two interactions with angels. And in both cases, they came in explosive orbs of light in both cases. Now, you can argue, Ed, I, I would say that with Casey, initially, they, the, the angel, he said it apparently was an angel, but in that orb of light, when he had his first interaction, this angel asked him what he wanted to do. And he said, I wanted uh, mostly I want to help people, uh, mainly children. And the angel told him it will be so. And Edgar Casey started his career out. That's what he did. Uh, he was a he wasn't a psychic healer. Uh, he was a probably more of a psychic diagnostician where he would diagnose people's problems through his psychic ability, whatever that was. 
Uh, and then he would sometimes say there was a remedy and he would give the remedy. Other times he said, it's too late. And people overlook that. Now, when Casey strayed outside of that harmonizing with the angel and started giving loads of predictions and a lot about the past, I've written several books about this. Uh, by the way, my wife and I are lifetime members of the Casey organization. We work with them. Uh, my wife was um, uh, on the board of trustees for eight years and the head of it, the chairperson of it for a couple years, just a year ago is when she got off. So I'm not anti Edgar Casey. It's just the mistakes Casey made, whatever mistakes he ever made, were always when he strayed outside of the healing aspect with the angel. It's because he wasn't told, hey, you need to look into theosophy. You need to look into ancient history and Egypt and all that. That's not what the agreement with the angel was. Yeah, well, I when know you I'm have throwing to... a lot out here, but. Uh, <laughs> well, it, when, you know... Yeah, we have so many. Like, honestly, the fact that there's a lot to look at um, and there, there's a lot of avenues that a person can pursue leads me to wonder why am I compelled to pursue all of these things that you're talking about what is the underlying connecting force for everything what is the reason like what is the reason these are all connected like i i'm feel like i'm about to put my finger on that answer but since you've been doing this much longer than me and you're doing the same thing that i'm doing maybe you have that answer <laughs> it's your purpose mm hmm Yes, but why are they all connected? Why do I also, I went to a store with friends recently and ended up buying 10 different mythology books just because I knew they were going to show commonality in all these different countries. And by the way, immediately I detected the rainbow serpent comes up over and over in yeah. many, many countries. So I, I have- Well, okay. Uh, all right. All things are connected. All right. So that's one thing. All things are connected. Um, Carl Jung talked about some of this. So did John Keel. Native Americans do. And that is that if you are constantly seeing the connections between all things, it gets in the way of life. And ultimately, seeing all those connections drives a person batty. So you have to and a friend, another friend of mine, um, who died just a few years ago, and so so did his wife, Sherry, um, Brad Steiger. Brad Steiger talked about people getting into this field, and he wrote, Brad Steiger wrote over 200 books in this field, over 200. I used to think, I'm going to catch him. Uh, I, don't, I don't think I will anymore. Mm. Uh, but he wrote in a book that people that get into this often want to find the secrets of the universe, and he said, but these are people who can't balance a checkbook. Back in the days when we had checkbooks that you had to balance. Uh, but he's right. He was right about that. You're look, if, if you're looking for the secrets of the universe, make sure that your life is in order and mm -hmm. have your feet on the ground. So it's a matter of balance. And the Native Americans said that over and over. You must stay, stay balanced in order to maintain yourself in this field. Otherwise, you go off the deep end and you start following the trickster aspect. The trickster as aspect is the dangerous aspect. 
which of course I have to throw out that Jack Foulet also talks about that, the trickster. And I keep thinking of leprechauns because we haven't mentioned leprechauns yet. And yeah, we should. They're like, like one theirs. of the biggest tricksters that there there exists. I've many times done the thought experiment of what three wishes would I ask for and how would a leprechaun try to get out of it or trick me with that? <laughs> you know, like well so. <laughs> all of these entities uh have the capability of tricking us. Right. So you had you keep yourself in balance and you have your intentions good. Wanting to know the secrets of the universe, I don't believe is a is a good motivation. I don't yeah, think I don't that's, think a good that's what it is for me. Yeah. I feel I didn't like, say uh, uh, yeah. it's a matter of you're seeing the connections. Mm -hmm. You are seeing a lot of connections and you can follow those connections. And so what I have tried to do is compartmentalize a little bit and keep my feet on the ground uh, by paying bills, keeping the house managed as well yeah. as I can with my wife, uh, keeping most of my uh, mental of mental and physical affairs in good order, uh, and and keeping myself in my professional field, and then venturing out. But I don't get sucked in to. Uh, certain things that are going to be unbalancing. That was the, that's the danger that the native American people that I have interact with, that's what they've said over and over. It's when you get unbalanced, that's when the danger occurs and you know, when you're unbalanced, right? You will know yeah, when I, you are. I wanted to talk about that because I actually had just mentioned this with Jeff Crapel the other day. Um, I had an experience about a week ago where I had a few minutes at work to sit down and just take a break. And suddenly I just felt like I was getting a whole bunch of information, like just a ton of information. And some of it was really out there, but it was still very plausible. So this is the one that really got me. And it, it actually really bothered me that like I couldn't stop these thoughts. Right. It was like racing thoughts. Right. Um, what if, and, and it was out there, but we know that UFOs have abilities that surpass ours, right? They are able to do things with time and space and space time, which is like a dimensional issue. What if they can become microscopic beyond what we can see size-wise and then enlarge? And like that thought and that information was like that to me might be too much <laughs> that was when i was well, like it, that could be a big problem <laughs> well it's like what is the you have to make it relevant what is the relevance to you now with that i'll give you an example of gone off the deep end all right or mm -hmm. how it can go i don't know how much time we have left this will only take a minute to tell you all right so are you familiar right. with the term psychomantium all right uh, psychomantium uh was a greek um sort of an oracle method. It's related to scrying and so on. And it was brought to the United States by a physician by the name of Raymond Moody. Moody wrote the book Life After Life. Um, I know Raymond Moody. Uh, and when I went to one of his workshops some years ago, uh, it was in the 80s. It was at the University of Tennessee Medical School. It was only medical personnel were there. There were physicians and nurses because Moody had started a psychomantium workshop at the University of Texas for people who were uh, dying or had recent relatives that died and they were trying to make peace with them. 
So Moody developed a psychomantium out of a mirror, a gigantic mirror. And in Alabama, at an old grist mill, he set this up and he would prepare people to go into this psychomantium, which a psychomantium is basically an all black room. The walls are black, the ceiling's black, the floor is black, and you have a giant mirror in front of you. You have a very small light. Often it's a couple candles behind the person so it doesn't reflect in the mirror. The mirror is tilted up toward the ceiling a little bit and you look into it. If you look into it long enough, and it doesn't take long for this to happen, it is a infinitely deep, dark void. I'll say that again, an infinitely deep, dark void. So he talked about doing this. And I asked Moody at lunch one day when we were sitting together and I said, what if you made this and you set yourself up to see a UFO or an alien being? Would an alien being walk out of the mirror? And I'm using that term walk out of the mirror specifically because he had cases where the beings literally walked out of the mirror, as did the University of Texas when they were doing this with people who were in bereavement. So one, one of the famous cases was Joan Rivers. Her husband had committed suicide. She went down to the grist mill that Moody had in Alabama, was prepared, went in to the psychomantium. Her husband, who had killed himself, walked out of the mirror. She said he was physical. He sat down with her. She was crying. He wiped the tears from her face. They talked a while and then it was over. He went back into the mirror. That is a documented case. I've written about it in a couple of books. So, okay, I set up a psychomantium in my office in a house where I lived before this one. I had a Native American shaman come and use it and a friend who was uh, part Native American and her husband used it also. The Native American shaman had a very weird experience in it that she would not talk about. I, to this day, I still don't know. Her friends told me that she just had a experience that she just never wanted to talk about. I had an experience that I had three straight times, the same one. I sat in there. I watched the thing. It's very strange. I mean, this is a very strange setup. Again, all black. And what I saw every time, I heard footsteps, like somebody walking down the steps of a wooden stair, wooden mm -hmm. staircase. Boom, 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 like that. And then I saw a green light coming out of it, like they had a green flashlight on the other side, shining around the room. That happened to me the three times that I used it, the exact same experience. And I wanted to see something else. And so what I did at that point, I dismantled the thing and didn't do it anymore. Here's why. Because I could have gotten into that and done that over and over and over. And literally it becomes unbalancing and you lose yourself. And at the time, I had far more important things that I needed to do in my life at the time. And I could see myself doing this every single night. Well, that's, I think, the allure of all of these things. They Once you find out something, you get a taste of it. It's amazing. Like our humanity, our civilizations, our commonality, the thread through the whole universe, all of it is amazing, right? But I, yeah. I had something to tell you about this. All right. I watched Tyler Henry's show on Netflix, which is about mediumship. 
And okay. he created one of these and you can see it in that show. Okay. Interesting. I don't have Netflix, so I haven't seen it, but I will at, at some point see it. Well, uh, even if you, if you go look it up on YouTube, you might be able to find a clip. Like people do clips from shows on Netflix sometimes, but he created one in his garage, I guess it was. Yeah. Um, and he's very much a part of, of the community too. Like he's interested in UFOs. He thinks that some of the things he picks up are non-human intelligence. Um, so I think that's fascinating because as you described it, I was envisioning what he created. It was exactly what you described. Yeah. Yeah. There's another story that relates to this. We had in our, in the office, I was in a private practice from 76 to 80 uh, part-time and with the psychiatrist and the psychologist who'd been my major professor. Uh, and we had a device in the office. Remember they were interested in all this new age stuff. Uh, he had a device in his office called the Graham, as in Graham cracker, the Graham potentializer, uh, which is now off the market. But it was a device much like a couch with no sides or back or anything. You would lay on it. It created a bubble of electromagnetic energy around you that was tuned to the Earth's ambient magnetic field known as the Schumann resonance. So it had this. You could move yourself. You could lay in the North Pole or the South Pole, depending on what you wanted to do. And this thing also rotated every seven seconds. And when I say rotated, I mean it went in a circle up and down, like this, up and down, up and down, every seven seconds, tuned to the average frequency of ocean waves. So you would immerse yourself in this and lay on it and have very strange experiences. I did many times. My professor did. His wife, who was a psychiatrist. Well, I took the shaman. His name was Lou White Eagle, the arrow priest of the Cheyenne tribe. Took him there on a Sunday when I was filling out paperwork and let him lay on it. And within a minute, he came into my office and he went in his uh, deep voice, which is almost stereotypical, but he sounded just like this. He went, little blue people. I said, what? He said, little blue people. Little blue people are in the room. And I said, what are you talking about, Lou? And he said, oh, there's little blue people in there. So I went in the room, didn't see anything. The device was still doing its rotation, so I turned it off. And he explained to me that when he laid down and shut his eyes, he suddenly became paralyzed he opened his eyes, couldn't move his head, but we had a window, a, a three-window a three side to the office where he could see, where he could look outside, and he saw these blue beings looking through the window at him. And suddenly, he said, they literally pushed through the walls and the windows, and he was surrounded by them. And they were all about three and a half feet tall, and they started poking on his body. And when they started poking on his body, he said that he, he suddenly could move and he immediately got up and that's when he came into my office. And in Native American lore, they talk a lot about the little people, which are usually in skin tight blue sort of outfits. Mm -hmm. And it so happened that Whitley Strieber's book, Communion, had just come out recently before that. And I had a copy of it. So I gave him that book and I said, did they look like this? Because on the cover... Whitley showed the traditional gray. And he said, sort of. He said, it's not exactly like that, 
but it was the same size, had the same kind of eyes and so on. But he said it was all blue. So after Whitley knows this story. Whitley and I talked about it quite a lot. And of course, I had forgotten that in that book, Whitley called them the little blue people. He yeah. said they were blue. They made them real gray on the cover, but they were actually blue, which right. is kind of interesting. That's the last thing that we talked about a few months ago when I was uh, when I was on a show. I met Whitley. I'll have to tell you about that briefly when we finish, because I have All something right. to tell you about what he said to me. Um, but I wanted to comment that one thing that has crossed my mind is that when when you were talking about this room where which was like a sensory deprivation yeah yes it's i wonder if it's triggering a stress response in our brain just like dmt kind of does right dmt has a little bit to do with neurotransmitters and stress so i wonder if that room itself also triggers it and that's what causes that the window to open so to speak i don't know that i don't know of any but with um whitley um raymond moody was very careful in selecting people and putting them in. I didn't follow his instructions and get myself all mm -hmm. relaxed and so on. Um, but I didn't feel any stress at all. Um, right. The the three people that I let in, the Native American, I think she was probably, she was a Native American medicine woman with the Cherokee. Uh, mm -hmm. And it may, have, it may have stressed her out a little bit when she went in, because I know she probably had a bit of fear. The other two people, one of which was half Cherokee, uh, they didn't have bad experiences at all and weren't stressed by it. And I really wasn't stressed with it. Uh, maybe that's I, why nothing yeah. walked out for me. And I don't mean like stress, like people think, oh, my I know heart's going to be beating fast or I'm going to be hyperventilating. I think yeah. like the brain... Something up here. Is, yeah, the yeah, brain has errors. Exactly. Like with the near-death experience, which, by Maybe. the way, I read Moody's books a long, long time ago. So I'm excited that you mentioned him. Um, mm. But... Yeah, so like maybe a stress experience because people talk a lot about how trauma is connected to a lot of these things. And actually um, in the UAP Medical Coalition, we just went over how some of these things may be connected that changing the brain in some way makes us open to the phenomenon. Yeah. Um, so I just wondered if just have, because sensory deprivation gets used for the same thing. Like people go into tanks, black oh, yeah. tanks, you know, with like, you know, they get... So it's just so interesting. And those are considered spiritual and scrying with the mirror is as old as can be. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Because, and so the last thing I wanted to say, uh, there's so many things I want to talk about with you. It's amazing how many things you and I are both interested in. Um, so I feel like we, at some point in time, humanity understood our relationship better with what, is sometimes also known as the star people, the sky people, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, for instance, in Egypt, they said that they were related to the gods. And that that's one of the reasons they were very careful of their bloodline, right? Um, in fact, to the point of marrying their siblings, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. and, and we have yogis constantly sitting and meditating, trying to reach out you know, to the sky. And we have um, indigenous people having a relationship and trying to reach out through um, substances or meditation practices or rituals. 
So what do you think changed? Why do you think we lost all that and are still like so many cultures are still rediscovering it while others are still like, yeah, of course it's real. It's what happened. Number one, we live in an electromagnetic cesspool. It's mm -hmm. all over man-made electromagnetic energies everywhere. And there's no way to get away from it. Every cell phone that's on is putting out a constant bubble. People think they're long, like it's a beam of energy. It's not, it's a bubble. Cell phone towers are everywhere. The room I'm in, the computer I have, my Wi-Fi set up. Uh, when I was writing a chapter in that in the book with Andrew Collins, I decided to see how many Wi-Fi connections do I have? And I had 23. I was picking up the FBI theirs oh. where I was living in downtown Memphis at the time by the river uh, and the FBI, Homeland Security and the city's, uh, the Coast Guard, FBI, Homeland Security and the city's water police department were all in the same place and they had very powerful wi-fi there i was picking all them up i was picking up a hotel i was getting all my neighbors including all of their devices like your printer printers are putting out wi-fi signals now too so the i, I specifically mentioned the schumann resonance in the earth's electromagnetic ambient waves it's ambient power and that you just don't get it anymore and even Native Americans have talked about this, that it has caused disruptions. I believe that's related to the dramatic increase that we've seen in attention deficit hyperactive disorder and probably several other mental disorders. Uh, I can tell you with 5G, I wrote a little bit about this in the book, but decided I didn't want to put too much. Do you know how much research has been done with uh, cell phone frequencies and bacteria and viruses? Almost none. The hmm. only research that's been done is on the effects on humans and human cells and the genetics of human cells and what, what those little booklets that you get with your phone says, although I don't think they give you a book anymore. I think you go online. It's like in the very last pages, it tells you, oh, you're very safe as long as you don't put this up against your body and use it very long. What is long use? It's about two hours a day. So you're not supposed to have your cell phone against your body. Your cell phone is constantly putting out these frequencies. People just don't know that. Uh, but with bacteria, it causes bacteria to mutate. The only article that I could ever find in the professional literature on cell phone frequencies and viruses showed that it caused, it caused viruses to mutate. The very first city, well, I don't want to get in there. People call me conspiracy theorists. I'm not. Uh, but you know what, there is, I, we're living in a cesspool of electromagnetic energy, all of the electric right. wires, uh, you know, they talk about electric fields. Well, every time the electro electrical field goes back and forth, it goes, we have 60 cycles. It goes back and forth 60 times a second. Every time it does, it's sending out an electromagnetic pulse, a field that's going back and forth and rotating 60 times a second. And there's wires everywhere in the room that I'm in. There's wires all over the place in here. And I am subject to that all the time. We're out of balance. That is what they tell us. Plus, we never touch the ground. We never literally ground ourselves. We do everything we can to not touch the ground. And if we do, we put on some sort of rubber soles or something that insulates us from the ground, which literally they use the term grounding. When they did exercise, when they did ceremonies to, to manifest these beings, the first thing they did 
was remove the sod from the ceremonial space and expose the pure dirt under the sod. They would take off whatever was on their feet and they would put their feet in the soil. They literally grounded themselves. This is something very few people know. That is what they did. They don't want electricity around when they do these. They don't want people to have cell phones. And of course, they didn't until very recent times. I no, wanted I'm to going say, off here. <laughs> I know I got excited when you mentioned bacteria. And that's why I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa hold on. Because uh, they just released, um, you know, information recently. In fact, it's probably not new, um, but, you know, people like to share updated information about how bacteria impacts our mood. Yeah. Um, so Gut you're literally, particularly. yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it, it, so basically you really are what you eat is kind of like the joke, right? So we if are. we are messing bacteria up and again, going to those microscopic universes um, with EM stuff, then we could be impacting our moods and it's all related. It's all connected. So, um, <laughs> And nothing is going to happen with that. Even if cell phone technology turns out to be negative uh, and there's no research going on in this, nobody's funding it. Uh, it's way too big of a business, way too important. It's everywhere in the world. It is so much money. There is, and people are so reliant on it now. The AirPods everybody uses now, the Bluetooth technology, they're now saying that is pretty bad for you. Because literally, you're putting those right next to your brain, and there's an electromagnetic field around them. And every time, <laughs> people just don't know. I wonder yeah. if that's why the uh, the product that I was looking at the other day got taken down or disappeared. It was someone was inventing um, something that emits music to you. Yeah, but it doesn't require headphones or earbuds. Yeah, which is okay. like what we talked about before, like beaming sound in your head. Yeah, right. And I was trying to find out more because it's essentially the technology that I think non-human intelligence uses for telepathy. I agree. I and agree. I couldn't find more. I think it got yanked. It may have been taken by DARPA. Who knows? I don't <laughs> but know. but I found it so interesting. It's just so interesting how often these things mesh together but um bright stable has a story where someone basically told him light sound and frequency is the secret to all of this and tom delong who's you know big in the ufo yeah, yeah. stuff like he also said something similar and having done this research for a while yes light sound frequency the ems spectrum is so important but when you look at the planet, which was worshipped by indigenous people and people all over the world, and thank God still people today who are like into hiking and going out like, you know, DJ, my friend DJ, he goes out and touches trees. I sit and stare at trees. That's what I do. I like yeah. to bond with okay. trees. But um, the earth also is part of that spectrum itself. It is a giant geomagnetic field one that is recognized by naturalists one that is changing all the time one that the the government actually paid to try to map <laughs> they try to map yeah. the magnetic field so it's all connected it's yes, really it interesting so well, it's been a pleasure 
I oh, know yes. you're, you're out of ta time. It's been a pleasure. Uh, we'll do it again someday. Absolutely. I definitely have so much more to talk to you about. Um, I will continue on the same path that you have also been on and for many years and um, hopefully we'll end up having the answers that we need to have for people uh, one day. <laughs> uh, it may be the search is more important than the answers. <laughs> yeah, it's possible I, for our souls. Searching may be the most important thing. Interacting with it was the whole point again with native with the Native American beliefs. I'm talking mainly about the mound builder beliefs. It was interacting with it, harmonizing it, and recognizing it. That was the only way to keep it all in balance. Otherwise, it caused chaos. There were two great forces. It was chaos and creation, and we were in the middle of these forces. And our job was to harmonize with both. That's their belief. Well, if you um, recognize the fact that we are currently limited in, in these forms with our little brains, even though our brains are amazing, actually, they're hugely quantum computer-like brains. But anywho, one day <laughs> we'll understand yeah. when we get out of this little barrier, right? When we <laughs> Maybe. get back into what I call the cosmic internet. So... Yeah become plasma balls yeah. <laughs> well we are we may actually be the term plasma came out of uh, our blood anyway that's why they call them that because they had characteristics of our blood that's a good point it's a good yeah. point absolutely well, can you, okay so can you please let people know where they can find you and actually throw out a few of your book titles that you might want people to go check out too please well go on the, the Google my full name, Gregory, put the initial L little, Gregory L little. You'll find me there. You'll see all the books somewhere there. Uh, I'm on Twitter. That's the best place to interact with me. Uh, Facebook, I'm booked up. You know, you only have so many friends on Facebook. Uh, and I don't really interact much there anyway. So find me on Twitter uh, and Google me. As far as books go, the most recent one was called the Origins of the Gods with Andrew Collins and uh, I did this mountain encyclopedia. So you can see all that on Facebook. I'm sorry, on Twitter. Uh, find me there. That's that's my spiel. And I have linked in the description um, a site that shows all kinds of different books that you've written. So people can take a look at that. And this was Deb from Deb's Dad at Dojo, part of the Calling All Beings podcast network. If you guys need to find me, you can find me at Study of UAPs or with the UAP Medical Coalition. Um, my website's theufoconnector.com. And of course, you can find me with Calling All Beings on YouTube. Thank you for listening and take care.